Nightcaps of the Living Dead. What an excellent day for the exorcist. Welcome to our Halloween spooktacular. And although this movie was released the day after Christmas, I personally feel that nothing says Halloween like The Exorcist. So it's widely known as the scariest movie ever made. And just like Linda Blair shaking her bed, we are going to shake up the format today. So every horror buff knows that, you know, they know facts about the making of this film. But we thought we would spice it up a bit. We are going to unveil some bizarre events that happened on the set. And um, this eventually led to people saying that this production was cursed. So there's a curse of The Exorcist. We're going to analyze some special effects and camera angles that were groundbreaking for the time. And instead of going beat by beat for this movie, we're just going to pick out a few key scenes that resonated with us after this recent viewing. So um, for something extra special, we are going to focus on some of the lesser known performers of this piece. Like, for example, I didn't know that a murderer slash accused serial killer was a day player in this. So, yeah. Oh, shit. Right? So buckle (laughs) up and strap in like Pazuzu. We are calling The Exorcist. This is a story about a priest an actress, a 12-year-old girl, and a demon. What happens when they come together? And who gets out alive? I love it. it that's also intro kind of like, a, it's a true story of seven strangers that come to live in a house. Like, I mean, think about the it's exorcist like, as a reality show. That's kind of fun. It's like, it's like, you know, the beginning of a joke. All these people walk into a bar. Well, these people and- walk into this house, <laughs> and this demon walks into this house, too. And they all kind of, you know... Battle it out over two hours. <laughs> the Exorcist is based on the novel by William Peter Blatty. And he, I guess, made a lot of money from the selling of the book that he was basically executive producing the movie himself and kind of picked, was looking for a specific type of director uh, to do this. And a working. very specific type of director is William Freakin. He exactly. is the specific <laughs> director. And I love so it. I believe, uh, so William Friedkin had a background in documentary filmmaking and kind of transitioned into narrative. And he made, I think, was it a year before this, The French Connection and won all the Academy Awards. So he was mm-hmm. like an Academy Award winning on a high. director on a high. Um, and William Peter Blatty, he was really attracted to his sense of realism to everything. So if you haven't seen The French Connection, it's kind of has the longest chase sequence in any movie. And it has this even though it's an action kind of spy thriller, it has a very gritty realism to it that he brought from his documentary days. It should be noted that for William Peter Blatty, that his novel, The Exorcist, was based in truth. This is actually exactly. based on a case that happened in Maryland. I believe there was, I, I read conflicting things. There's something in St. Louis in the 1940s, and then another incident that I think that um, William Peter Blatty was more interested in around the D.C. area or Maryland uh, in the 50s, I believe. Interestingly enough, I recently watched an interview with Ellen Burstyn, who is a masterpiece of an actress. Oh, I love her. Um, and she was talking about, like, they were asking her, like, how how were you able to play this role, Who's a, this person who's experiencing these very supernatural type of events? And she said that the, they gave her the clipping of of the story that this is all based on the real story. And she mm. kind of studied the real, the real thing, the real case. Mm-hmm. And that made her, made it real for her. So I think the movie for me is about 
the power of belief or whether we can believe in impossible things. Oh. And, and maybe I'm going to go dive. I'm going to dive right in right. to what I, my reading of this movie was all about. I thought this movie was about the power of the audience to believe in filmmaking and what the movie's presenting and believing that to be true. Ooh. So because the movie is about these people, right? The, the priest who's losing his faith, right? So the entire arc of Father Harris is that he's no longer believing in God or in the church. Mm-hmm. He's losing his faith because his mother is dying mm. and, and eventually dies, right? And that could so be he, all of us filmmakers saying Marvel movie after Marvel movie. <laughs> yes, we're Martin <laughs> Scorsese. We feel you. And so, so it's like, it's, it's, so it's about the power of belief, not only in a higher being or the demons or whatever, but us in the movie. Are we going to believe that what's happening in this movie is really happening? And mm. you know what? The movie, by by playing with that idea, by having by revolving around the making of a movie, I mean, the entire movie revolves around an actress, a director, and a production. And so when you start seeing the movie as like a meta fiction mm-hmm. of sorts not a direct meta fiction not West Craven's New Nightmare or anything like that or Scream but there's an element of meta in there a little similar in, to our last episode for Hereditary of our of Ari Aster oh, the, the, building the, the sets and controlling yes. his actors like puppets and then Tony Collette and the figurines <laughs> and the, yeah. the, the art of the art of Tony I was reading about the making of the film and I, I, I like your point about it's the magic the belief of filmmaking because how they got some of these shots I was like wait a minute how did they get that because there's one particular shot of um, I won't go into it now but the Steadicam wasn't invented until 1975 and then this movie no 19 yes because these people found really creative ways to light and film and I know William Freakin <laughs> he's not everybody's you know pot of tea but I love him I think he's zany and nutty I think he would 100% get cancelled in today's culture if he was <laughs> making movies yeah, on yeah, a reg yes because of, <laughs> he he's he had unorthodox ways of directing. Yeah, as dive into to get the best that would not fly today. Oh yeah, would not work. Um, like didn't he, he shoot? Didn't he shoot a gun in the set to make people to jump? get the natural reaction? It's like they're actors; yeah. they got this, buddy. It's okay. You don't have to do that. And also, I love looking up uh, pictures of William Friedkin. I mean, he's somebody that you and I know. We saw a few Q and A's with him, and I feel like we he could be our yes. friends. He he's like somebody that says like baby and like we got make the scariest picture ever right like i just i love him i think he just drinks whiskey all day and fur coats he's just so funny but looking at these pictures he's on the set in berets and ray-bans and corduroy i mean he is fashionable as he's directing the scary ass movie um but anyways i i love that he had a vision and he really wanted to get the most out of his performers and and he got it. And it's not like the don't worry, darling drama where you want to see everything that happened off the set. For this, I'm like, you made a masterpiece. I don't give a shit what happened off the set for as far as, you know, scaring performers or really exhausting them Kubrick style into, you know. Into a bl- into So, and I think because he understood that if the actors had to, everything had to feel so real. The actors had to believe that what was happening was real. Yeah, and that documentarian and so- directing style, yeah. And so when I heard um, Ellen Burstyn talking about, oh, oh, to make it real for me, I had to look at all the like research that William Peter Blatty had done for the novel about mm-hmm. the, that case in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So she read all that stuff, and that's how she made it real for herself. Her reactions are so real, and that's what makes the movie real to the audience. 
And it kind of spills since she plays an actress, which I think is very interesting um, because there's not that many movies at that time where you had that an actress so much playing around and, yeah. filmmaking. You know, there was no, this, this is not Mulholland Drive or something like that. So, and it's not necessarily an exploration about performance or acting, but a person who constantly, who's trained is to be other people. Ooh. All of a sudden, she possesses confronted. other bodies, and now she yes. has to deal with. Almost, it could be a fucked up all about Eve. Yes, with a demon. Yes, <laughs> exactly. All about Eve. Actually, I thought about all about Eve when oh. I was watching it, and so it's like she's seeking truth to perform the role. Which I, I mean, do we talk a little bit about? Can we talk a little bit about the movie that she's making? Is it she's some sort of activist? Um, they have that scene in front of the university where oh. she's like. Yeah. It's, it, it feels like a very Sally Field, Norma Ray type movie. That oh, that's right. She's that running she's through doing. the crowd and she's like, no, listen to me. And yeah. I, yeah. Listen to the student. The students are picking or something. We don't quite know what the movie's about, but the movie has something to do with activism. The portrayal of the director, Mr. Burke Jennings, which I find fascinating knowing a little bit about, you know, Billy Friedkin. Mm-hmm. We've met him a couple of times and he likes, you know, to hit the, the sauce. <laughs> the, he, the director is a freaking drunk and he's hilarious it. and he's a mess. He's like, I see <laughs> myself in this role. And when you were describing pictures of him as being fabulous on set, this guy thinks he's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> the scene, uh, one of the first scenes with Reagan where um, Ellen Burstyn is putting her to bed, Reagan is kind of implying that she's sleeping with the director. Yeah. And every time I watch this scene, like, ooh, I feel like I've heard you. I've heard, like, Almost like she's heard them having sex or something. Mm-hmm. Like Reagan is really convinced that her mother is keeping the secret affair from her, mm-hmm. and and we know that she lies to her daughter because she says, "Oh, I love your daddy," and she really means it. But then the next scene, I think she's fighting, trying to find him in some hotel in Paris, and that motherfucker that called his daughter's birthday. And which, so, which I have to bring this point up because I've never gotten this until this rewatch. We don't need the useless Craig T. We don't need the useless Gabriel. He is not there. He is not there. And the thing that surprised me the most out of this rewatch, the thing that I took with me, is that this passes the Bechdel test. They don't talk about a man. For the Bechdel test, there's three qualifying elements. So it has to have at least two women in it. And then they also have to talk to each other about something besides a man. So this passes it in spades. We don't have the useless dad. Like, he's, he's not a ne- the male figure is not a negative source. And even if you were to argue that the demon could be a man, uh-uh, it's not. The de- one, a demon is an entity. It's not male or female, but according to hereditary, it might want to be one or two or all yeah. of the above. But it's voiced by a female actress. So I just mm-hmm. got to say, it's really a secretly feminist piece. And she has a great relationship with her daughter, who we assume she had with another actor. I don't know. I, I For some reason, I keep thinking, oh, I wonder if... I keep thinking of um, people like Tippi Hedren when she was a single mother with Melanie yeah. Griffith or like... Well, like Janet Lee with Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, like, I keep thinking of that. So for here's some a reason. factoid. I did not know this that Jamie Lee Curtis was invited to audition to be Reagan. <gasps> and Janet Lee went, Hell no. And you know, the screenwriter was just like writing up because I mean, it's very heavily influenced by Hitchcock. I mean, with the steps and everything. So they also were considering uh, Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. 
Oh, so, well, they wanted a mother and da- a mother was an actress. They wanted showbiz pair for with sure. The daughter. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. So I, my, my, what I read is that Linda Blair had no acting experience. She had kind of modeled or something, and her mother brought her for the for the audition. And, and yeah, she was with a talent agency, of, and the talent agency she was like thirteenth on the list. They're like, eh, she's okay. <laughs> and then the mom was, you know, a Chris Jenner. And demanded that she audition. Yes. And I gotta say, maybe this is controversial. I don't think Linda Blair is that great. I think she's fine. I think the the people that steal this performance are the voice actress and Eileen Dietz, the double. So, and by the way, that is the reason she didn't win the Academy Award. Yeah. The, after she was nominated. So this movie received 10 Academy Award nominations. It's actually the first horror movie to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Or or the first horror movie to be nominated for for acting categories, directing, screenwriting. Mm. It set the stage for, I think, for The Silence of the Lambs, then winning in 1990, yeah. about 17 years later. <sighs> it took so long. So, but there was talks that Linda Blair was going to win because everyone had been so traumatized by watching yeah, this movie. Yeah, because it's a they all... stunning experience. And she is, like, she's the demon. You think of this innocent, sweet girl. You see her transformation from being so sweet and pure to this crusty monster <laughs> at the end. And you're blown away. You don't know the mechanics of what went behind. Of so what went behind, exactly. Yeah. So I think the Academy found out, oh, okay, this was created by a combination of elements. Alien Dietz did all the stuff that was like the crucifix stuff, the stuff that was that they didn't want a 12-year-old performing because it would be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, what is the name of the actress who voiced? Oh, the... I have a whole thing on her because oh, shit. her first name is Carlotta, which I think is beautiful, but Carlotta Mercedes Agnes McCambridge. Like that, what McCambridge. A, what so, a great name. Correct me if I'm wrong. She is an Oscar winner at this point. She was an Oscar winner for All the King's Men. Mm-hmm. And an Oscar nominee for uh, Giant. So she is a member of the Academy. So when the Academy members found out, wait a minute, this awesome actress who's older, won an Oscar for a beloved movie mm-hmm. in the 50s, or in the late 40s, early 50s, did the voice for the demon, they all of a sudden felt like it was like category, like cheating. Which like, I oh, agree. Linda Blair. I honestly do. Even though Linda Blair did a few, I mean, she did her part, but. Definitely, it was a combination of Eileen Dietz and Mercedes McCambridge. It was three people that made this beautiful performance, which also I really like because it goes to I don't what... think it would have worked otherwise. I think oh, that's no. what makes it work. Yeah. So It's, it's a demon says, possessing a child, so you have to have multiple so you entities. You have to have another yeah. performer in there, otherwise it doesn't really work. Right. So apparently, Linda Blair did perform all the lines that were then replaced yeah. With Mercedes. So she did perform them. It just it just didn't work as well as putting someone else in like an old because I'm assuming Mercedes McCambridge was older at this Oh point. yeah. So get this. Orson Welles once described this woman as the world's greatest living radio actress. She was a voiceover performer before she was an actress. And she's oh. yeah, extremely talented woman. So for doing the voice of uh Pazuzu, uh she this was her own call. She insisted on swallowing raw eggs, <sighs> chain smoking, and then she was a sober person. She had problems with booze, and she gave it up, and then she got the call to do The Exorcist. She was like, all right, back on the whiskey. So it was like whiskey, eggs, and cigarettes. That was her own insistence, and William Friedkin met the director. He's like, you need to be 
bound to a chair. You need to be restrained to show the the fear and the frustration in your voice of trying to break free. So she had oh, an actual priest. Made- yeah, she was Pazuzu for real. Like he, a priest was there and bound her to the chair as she's doing her vocal work. So when I was watching this this opening sequence, which I really like, it's there's almost no dialogue in it. It's very um, the, depends a lot on on sound, like mm-hmm. all the clink, 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 and, and all also the moves. visuals of how bright it is. It's a bright, desolate desert. You're in Iraq, and I remember as a child going, I signed up to see a scary, dark movie. What what the hell is this? <laughs> This desert. This bright desert. And it, and it jars me every time, but I love it. The, the, the excavation. And then you, you meet this character played by the, I, by the incredible Max von Sido, who we meet as a, basically as an archaeologist. We don't meet him as a priest. We kind of discover that he's a priest down the line. But mm-hmm. if you're watching this for the... And I thought about this this time. If you're watching this for the very first time, you don't know anything about it. There's this old guy and, you know, he has his little pills and he has issues with his heart or something. And he's, you know, Indiana Jonesing it in Iraq. <laughs> and he's like, what, you know, and the locals know him and they, they come out with their like big guns and they're like, oh, yeah, hi, dude. Like he lives there. Everybody knows him. And I thought it was a, kind of a cool representation of, of Iraqis, even though there's so many problematic films that represent the Middle East as others, and of course it has led to all sorts of problems in the mm-hmm. world through mm-hmm. the years. So being this a movie, a 50-year-old movie, I thought it was really cool that there's this white old dude, like, excavating shit, he finds a little picking token thing. It dawned on me. Max von Sydow was your age when he made this movie. I, he was 42 years old. I know. I looked and it up. So, I'm like, how old was he when... And he was younger than me. <laughs> the Max von Sydow aging know, makeup is... Which nobody questions. Nobody questions no. it. You're like, this Guys. is this an older man. You're like, this is a 70, 80-year-old man. And then when Max von Sydow eventually became the 80-year-old man that y- that you and I and all of our, our listeners that know. That we've seen in the, like, you know, the, it was like the Star Wars movies makeup. He looks like he did in the makeup. They exactly. did such a beautiful... Exactly. Pr- it's crazy. Okay, it's Isn't like... Isn't that insane? It's like how Kate Isn't Winslet... You and I have talked about this. It's how when Kate Winslet in Titanic, she's a teenager, or 19 or 20 or something, she looks like she's 30. So by the time she gets to 30, she looks the same. And then she passes 30 and she maintains looking like 30. So she is that look forever. Kate Winslet has looked the same since the minute I saw her, in my opinion. And I think for Max von Sydow, too. So it basically created the illusion that Max von Sydow is like 300 years old. I know. By the time. But it's, I mean, he died in 2020. He died just like yesterday. Well, it's because he's Swedish and French. Like he's, <laughs> they have better health care, better he, diets, better air. So we have this guy who was an archaeologist first. Then we kind of learn that he's a priest by the end of the sequence. He's really, really old. And he's also our exorcist. He's going to be our exorcist. And the interesting part is that Max Lincito is so known for this part. And he's barely in the movie. He's in it. In those first 10 minutes or whatever, and then the last 10 minutes, right, mm-hmm. when he shows up at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so his performance is kind of short, but, of course, stays with you because it's a full-body performance, right? The way he walks. Yeah, everything. this it's is not so Robert amazing. De Niro and The Irishman. It's as much as he's... The way he's performing old sells it as much as his makeup. So you need the two to be working together. So he Cohesively, for made. sure. I know where... Yes, it's amazing. And then we have these, like... 
beautiful sh shot of the sun that starts the sequence and ends the sequence. So at the beginning, it's like this black and white shot that then turns into the blaring sun mm -hmm. that introduces our character. And then at the end, when he stands in that kind of cliff thing with the demon, it the whole sequence kind of ends. And then we go to Georgetown. <gasps> You're like, what the fuck? And so this is this is where, where our movie's going to take place. And why the demon decided to go to this house in Georgetown, who the fuck knows? On this tangent of the demon going down to Georgetown, I want to talk about the Catholic culture really quick. Because if you're not a Catholic, you just kind of know beautiful, ornate churches, and there's cardinals, there's a hierarchy. You kind of know about this stuff. You don't know about exorcism. So this movie brought that practice into light. And honestly, mm -hmm. um, demonic possession movies, they didn't really appear until like the 60s. So no, you're right. They start they start becoming Yeah, there's yeah, there's some older demonic possession movies. Well, yeah, but it's really, like, it becomes a thing. The earliest movie depicting an exorcism or like, you know, demons cast out is like this really trippy movie. It was like a Swedish movie in the 1920s called Haxon or Huxon or something. Mm -hmm. And so we got that, and then then we have the high morality clauses of, of Hollywood. Um, so there's a morality code from the 30s to the 60s. And then we get more into possessions, but it's more reflecting of mental illness, like repulsion, what we talked about. Mm -hmm. So it's more yes. about mental illness. Which this movie totally, totally, this is another reading I had, um, totally, totally tackles. So subtextually okay there's a lot going on in this movie about mental illness hmm. for example for okay. example if i might jump in yeah when the doctor when she's trying to talk to the doctors and they're like oh the reason the doctor suggests chris to take her to the exorcist is because oh because they'll believe that this is real again this movie's about believing in things that you are, that are impossible which that is was like wild cinema. that was wild to me on this rewatch because it's the doctor in the office after doing all these horrific experiments on reagan like well, it, invasive and they should me too movement should come for these doctors <laughs> and the exorcist they're so doing horrible this to a poor 12 year old girl so it's no. the entire first act we see this like crude machinery and there's like close-ups of syringes and like she's bleeding out the neck it is very hard to watch before we even get to the demons we are talking about modern science and it is the doctor and i believe they're smoking right they're doing that yeah. kind of madman just like well, smoking and looking at your chart whatever and it's the doctor that tells the mother, like, have you ever considered an exorcism? She kind of looks at him like, what the fuck? So it, that's um, when we're not skeptics anymore. That's when we have to give ourselves, we have to succumb to believing in something of like, well, religion's the only thing that's going to save this girl. And so in a, in, in a weird sort of way, the doctors are so focused on like bio, on the on the body, right? On like, oh, her brain has this lesion, all this stuff. Yeah, they're trying no to rationalize it. Yeah. Did you notice that no one ever really considers the psychological or psychiatric implications of what she's going through? They kind of skip from the biology of it to treating her as a kind of lab rat to a degree. That's why they prod and poke at her. Yeah. To to religion they skip the mental illness part and then at the same time parallel to that we're dealing with um father Carr's mother who's basically going into dementia oh, the right? Demi, why you do this the to Demi. me Demi. and again one of the most impactful sequences is when he walks to see right before she dies when he goes to see her when she's been committed to this 
institution, which mm-hmm. I assume is some, a, a form of mental institution, mental illness is not really talked about or treated either in a person like the mother or Reagan. So you have this really old woman and this really young girl. Oh, the opposite side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And they're both having issues, right? And here's the irony of it all. Our main character, the priest, is a psychologist. Mm. Remember that part? That's very true, yeah. So I was like, wow, wow, fascinating. And he seems to be like his profession is not one that's very revered. So it's not revered. In regular society, it's not revered within the church. I do commend the author and the director for making this a straight-up ghost story. They come in. They come in because yeah. you would never, like I say, you can't do a reading of this movie where you're like, oh, Megan is having issues, daddy issues, daddy stuff. Right, and yeah. She's getting her period for the first, or something now. You can't do a carry reading. You can't do any of, any of that. Agreed. Um, there has been readings of this movie maybe this is a dark dive in oh where this is a metaphor because you can't read it in the movie like you said it's very much committed to its demon ghost story um that she's been molested yeah i've been molested and and something and it has something to do with her dad and that's why he's not there and uh, the mother's protecting her from the effects of this trauma, and then it comes out. I've some articles about that, but I didn't see that. Honestly. I don't see that in the movie. Either. I tried. I, was, I wanted to bring it up because, <laughs> um, like the the symptoms of the demon are metaphors for a victim of, of incest or sexual right. sex, child abuse, um, and then they, that's implied because of the dad. And I was like, I don't. I don't see it. I, I really think that the intent is to make her as pure as possible so that her crossover is the demon being mischievous and over-sexualized and crude, that you really have to get that contrast. And that if Reagan like, had any of these properties in her, it wouldn't have worked. So I want to jump back into the meta-art or meta-film aspects of this movie since it revolves around an actress who's making a movie in Georgetown and the first kind of death in this movie is the film's director, the film that Chris McNeil is working, that Ellen Burstyn is working in. The fabulous and William Friedkin the fabulous character. drunk. He's like, ah, he gets really sloppy. And they're, and like, they're having their anti-mame party moment, just like singing and dancing. And, you know, a fabulous time. And then Reagan and the pisses gay on priest, their party. The yeah, gay priest. I put in my notes, old gays. <laughs> it's like a Palm Springs <laughs> time. Whose vision of heaven is to be in a piano bar and... Singing tunes from Broadway. The director is the first victim of the demon. He was the first to die after production <gasps> wrapped. So there's a That's curse. That's right. Yeah. Yes. He died this of like complications. People. Yeah. He he died of complications due to the flu. Like he was compromised <gasps> and then like he had Carol a heart attack. Ann? A little Shit. bit. But then at the same time, Max von Cito. Ellen Burstyn and Billy Freak. Well, Max Mosquito died recently. They're both right. pretty much up there and still alive. Okay, yeah. So I, <laughs> right? I read I read about how The Exorcist is cursed. I'm like, I need more evidence because, of course, if you make a film 50 years ago, a lot of people are going to die since then. For me, it was the timing of a lot of events. So the second person to die was Timmy's mother. Like, she dies mm. in the film. And she died she very did. soon after the movie wrapped. Just to go to wow. Max Mosquito. Okay. So he lived, you know, forever. So I'm like, yeah, who cares? You know, this was a coincidence, you know. But his first day of filming, his brother died. 
That's interesting that the people who died in the movie died shortly thereafter. The first one. <laughs> I know. Who lived forever. Well, if you remember, the seventh seal, he played chess with the devil. So he's good. Going back to that sequence where they're shooting the movie. And so they show you a crane shot that's supposed to show the crowd. And then you see Ellen Burr. They, they, they're like designing the shot. Mm-hmm. And then it goes. And then they show you the shot. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that this movie does is shows you how to make a shot, and then they show you the shot itself in the which movie, which goes into your theory right? about the love of filmmaking, which I did not yes. pick up. I'm I'm so on that vibe. I really like that. And then they show you, you know, they show you the equipment, how this movie magic is done, and all this stuff. They show Ellen Burstyn acting. Chris McNeil is reading the script and going over lines and has all these notes on it, and much what a priest does for the Bible and the ceremonious scripture. Ex- yeah. Exactly, exactly. So they. Oh, yes, I like that. The connection between the script and the Bible. Yeah, because it's a performance. Yeah. Because then at the end, he's reading from the Bible like he's reading from the script. Mm-hmm. He's an actor. Mm-hmm. He's a performer. There you go. Interesting. Kid stays in the picture, baby. So it's interesting. You mentioned something before that this movie transcends religion and the fact that it, you would think that the only people who could believe in what happens in the movie have to be religious people because they naturally or part of their tradition they believe in these kind of good and evil demons and angels type thing but somehow this was this went past that right mm-hmm. so how is it that a person that's not religious can engage with this movie i and agree I with am. that i i absolutely thought that while watching this that's why ellen burston is or chris mcneil is such a great character because she doesn't believe she has nothing to do with religion she's involved in all this so that's our gateway into the movie is through her but there's other elements in this movie that that kind of stick with you and it's there's certain images and certain things in the movie that you always go back to right one of them being the staircase by the house Mm -hmm. is a character in its own you think of scenes like Rocky, Exorcist, and mm-hmm. Joker even. Mm-hmm. It, it serves as this landscape. And I don't know if it's a metaphorical sense of like, we're all climbing or we're falling down. Like, I, I don't know. But stairs do resonate with a viewer. And in fact, William Peter Blatty, who wrote a sequel novel called Legion and then made a movie about it called Exorcist 3, mm-hmm. um, bases the entire movie and book that it's based on, on the stairs. The image, the poster of Exorcist 3 is the stairs. Well, do you think there and could you, also be a religious component to it of, you know, the ascension and descension? The from, ascension, mm-hmm. maybe, and like falling from grace and all the way down mm-hmm. to the bottom of the stairs, you're at the bottom of hell. I like that. But here's where I went with this, because he, what is at the crux of the mystery? There was no one else in the room. It was him. Well, there's even the question of whether he was in the room at all, but it's the strength of a 12-year-old girl. The only um, plausible explanation is that Reagan threw him out, but the, the mystery is that the force which he, his head would have been spinned or broken before he fell because the fall would not have done that. Or maybe an owl attacked him in the middle of the night <laughs> in the North exactly. Carolina woods. <laughs> maybe it was Michael her? Peterson. <laughs> But it's interesting because in the house, there's never any other man other than the director. He's the only person who goes there. So it's Chris, Reagan, and then her assistant or her her nanny that's always with her. They're the only people who live there. And then there's like the cleaning lady and then the, the, the groundskeeper guy that deals with the rats. 
Mm-hmm. But those are the only people who come into the house, and he's too old to have done this, right? Mm-hmm. No one wants to believe that she's the killer. Even when they're faced with her looking like she does and doing I know. and throwing it's, it's, I guess furniture. It's their comprehension for sure. So when you read the movie through this lens that the most unbelievable thing in this movie is the strength of a 12-year-old girl, and that's all you're watching. You're watching a 12-year-old girl throw furniture, spin her head around, do flipping, flip, <laughs> flipping on that bed, and no one believes that she has the strength to do any of these things. It's an amazing allegory for the power of feminism and women Ooh, because everyone is literally looking at it so we have the director dying down the stairs and then at the end of the movie jason miller oh aka damien carrot hot father hot daddy damien father who as you mentioned the connection between the stairs and rocky is also a boxer uh-huh. he dies down the stairs but he does it out of sacrifice he willingly throws himself down the stairs because he gets the takes the demon in and then throws himself down the stairs. It's the Which, ultimate sacrifice. Like he's questioning his faith the entire time, has guilt about his mom, and then he ultimately gives his life for a girl that he has never met. Mm-hmm. Uh, which That's is true. Pretty or only met as the demon, right? Only yeah. yeah. Only met as through their through her possession. So hot daddy Jason Miller. I always associated Hot Father Damien to be a Sylvester Stallone Philadelphia type. He's in his like gray sweats and running up and down everything. And he's a boxer and he has that vibe. Rocky didn't come out till after The Exorcist for for years. years. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So So, The Exorcist could have been an inspiration for Sylvester Stallone. Exactly. That's what I got this rewatch. I'm like from the sweats (gasps) to the stairs inspire the stairs. Eye of the Tiger yeah. stairs? Yeah. Holy shit. I never made that connection before. And I didn't know that Jason Miller was Papa to Jason Patrick of Lost yes. Boys fame. Yes. And our movies connect. So make sure to check out the Lost Boys um, episode that opens this season. Listeners, I really like the Lost Boys episode. We're just fun and drunk. I really enjoy that. Um, so I, I do want to go back to the curse of this because Jason Miller... Again, a lot of people died since this movie came out, but Jason Miller died pretty young. He died when he was 62. The mm-hmm. thing that I'm creeped out about, again, it's the timing. A weird thing that happened, he was involved in a freak accident. And I don't think it was immediately after production. I mean, he was in Exorcist 3. Jason was playing on the beach with his kids. I think Jason Patrick was there and his son, Jordan Miller. They were hit by a motorcycle on the beach. What? Exactly. Oh, I did not know this at all. They survived wow. this really strange freak accident. So that goes more into the lineage of bad That's things happen. Exactly. And like Final Destination. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to come for you, buddy. You can call this a string of bizarre coincidences and making it into urban folklore. But I, I just think this stuff is so weird considering the gravity of this movie so what i mentioned earlier paul bateson is called quote unquote the exorcist killer there is a killer a murderer that is a bit player in this movie that i was never privy to so if you remember the medical scene where Mm -hmm. they're doing all the horrible crude experiments on linda blair um william freakin actually filmed in a medical ward he had real doctors and technicians in the scene. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it feels pretty real. Yeah. Part of his documentarian 
Exactly. Hi. And so Paul Bateson, he was a radiology technician. And apparently, shortly after the movie was released, I mean, you, you can see him. He's in the background. I think he has like one or two lines. He looks pretty dopey, like blonde guy with a beard. Um, he murdered a reporter from Variety in his apartment in New York. So this is just a few years oh. after the movie's release, and he was a huge fixture, side note, huge fixture of the Leather Daddy Greenwich Village area. So okay. it coincides from 75 to 77, there were a bunch of murders in the Leather Daddy community. This is very Dama. Okay, yeah. keep going. Yeah. Anyways, there was like a, a serial killer, but of course the gay community was not getting a lot of love in the 70s and in new york in that way and then the nypd so creatively nicknamed the string of murders the bag murders because they would find body parts and bags in the hudson river and they would have like you know fabulous studded leather attached to these body parts so oh shit yeah wow and and so he was accused of this he was never convicted of this however after he murdered the reporter, William Freakin, visited him in prison. And he was like, oh, shit. yeah, because our boy Billy, he's crazy. He's like, he was adapting cruising at the time. And he was just like, well, you're a fixture in the Leather Daddy community. Let me know, you know, like I'm adapting this novel. So let's talk about this. And by the way, did you kill more than one person? And so the killer, he never admitted to the bag murders. But William Freakin insists that he admitted that he had some involvement in that going to more of the curse of the exorcist they had the exterior wait, wait, wait oh. by the way before you move on to the course yeah yeah this whole billy freaking visiting this potential serial killer he's just, a nut it's almost like, <laughs> but it's almost the plot of exorcist 3 so i wonder if william peter blatty was inspired right because this oh. was not written until the 80s so it right in addition to that, what you're saying of them being inspired by each other, um, this became a subplot of Mindhunter, this Paul Bateson character. Yes. So going on to other weird occurrences that happened on the set, early on in production, the entire set caught fire. <gasps> caught fire. Yes. But the one thing that did not burn, Regan's bedroom. The demonic bedroom did not catch fire. This freaked out everybody. And in Poltergeist fashion, later on in 1980... They called in a priest to bless this shit. They were like, we're not taking any chances. This is so strange. And in, in addition to some of the lesser known cast members that we were speaking about, um, an assistant cameraman's baby died, a special effects person died, a night watchman mm -hmm. died, all during the making of this movie. So people were kind of spooked. Also going on to The Curse, our girl that we were talking about, Mercedes, she has a really weird history with her son. So less than 10 years after the movie came out, Mercedes Cambridge, the voice of Pazuzu, her son, John, had a PhD in economics, had his own investment firm. He started doing some shady shit with investments. Like he was opening accounts in Mercedes' name. And when all was said and done, like he was forging her signature and moving money around, doing a lot of laundering and pretty much doing like a Jen Shaw thing. <laughs> he was robbing from innocent people and also in the name of his mother. This was more so in the 80s. He got caught, was fired, was about to face jail time. And he's like, mommy, help me out. And, you know, we can go through this together and I'll be on a payment plan with you because you're rich. Da, da, da. She's like, no, no, no. I'm a victim too. 
Uh-uh. She was a tough broad. Her son killed his entire family. Um, he was faced mm-hmm. with prosecution, and he wanted to pay back the victims and and asked for help from the mom. And the mom was like, Mercedes was like, no, like I, I'm innocent. And he shot his wife, two daughters, and then himself before leaving a lethal suicide note. And I just want to read that suicide note because it's fucked up. Oh, shit. Up. Okay. Tell us about the suicide note. I know. So <gasps> this might not be intended for young ears. Um so the letter so the, the suicide note is addressed to the mother. Yes, okay. Right, so okay. he he thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Um just a letter to his mama and it wasn't like Eminem. There was no Dido singing on this. The letter contained <laughs> the following. It said, "Initially you said, well, we can work it out, but no, you refused. You call me a liar, a cheat, a criminal, a bum. You said I have ruined your life." You were never around much when I needed you, so now I and my whole family are dead. So you can have my money. Night, mother. Oh my god. To end a suicide note with night, mother, just gives me chills. Wow. So yeah. You know, to this day, this movie has not only cursed the people that made it, but the people who watched it, (gasps) right? So it has affected people all throughout. And now I'm thinking of Dahmer, so... Speaking of the curses, Jeffrey Dahmer, famous serial gay serial killer, who there's mm-hmm. this TV show on Netflix by Ryan Murphy right now. One of the things Jeffrey Dahmer did is that he would sit his victims down and make them watch The Exorcist 3. And he actually talks about this in interviews after he was caught, what he why he loved this movie, how it affected him. And so the curse of The Exorcist does, does not stop with the people who made it, it goes on to affect people hmm. who use it as an excuse to be evil, right? Mm. I don't know. Let's talk a little bit maybe about the impact that the exorcist has had on us. What is the exorcist to you and to me? I remember the, like, where's the first time? This movie had such an aura, such a power to it, where right. before I ever watched it, it was, you imagined the movie in your head because it was so vilified it was like this is the worst thing you'll ever see in your life did you remember thinking of the before yeah. you were like nine or ten or whatever i remember seeing it like shit <laughs> that and michael jackson's thriller but it also makes you want to watch it You're of like, course okay, i was spellbound yes sit down and yeah. deal with this either i want to see this little girl puke in. and i want to see this man dance like yeah I, I knew that something entertaining would follow the yellow contacts because it would play on tv i was not taken to a theater to see either of those defining moments you know it was just casually playing on the tv and that was what was more scary to me and i remember my first i remember watching a spanish dubbed in puerto rico in a puerto rican local channel we're like we're finally showing it on tv and everyone was speaking so they did they did the demon voice in spanish like how do you even recreate that i just remember (laughs) i i I didn't actually watch the broadcast i just remember the trailer for it i actually the first time i watched it was like rented from a vhs place um, say, can you say a clean cut of it's an yes. excellent day so, for an exorcism in Spanish? Oh, wow. Wait. Es un día excelente para un exorcismo. That sounds spellbinding. <laughs> but I remember all the screaming because they also dubbed the screens with, you know, Spanish or Mexican actors who are mm-hmm. dubbing this, whoever dubbed this. Ah, ooh, Regan. Cool. You know, oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Gotcha. You would hear it, and I. This is the first, my first um, encounter with the Exorcist with 
with an edited trailer in Spanish. Think, I mean, didn't we go to see it in? in no, 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 no. When the, 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 in theaters, the first time I, I saw it in theaters. I thought you and I did see a reissue of it. Yeah, you and I saw it when Freaking did the Q and A. That's what we're thinking about in, at the ArcLight, guys. William Freaking did a Q and A. And just sat there for like two hours. He just wanted to chat it up. Oh, he had like I his little it. tumbler of whiskey and he was he was strutting and he had a microphone and we're like, we're not leaving until he leaves. And it was like a two hour Q&A and people were leaving. We're just like, no, so, we're staying. It was longer than the movie. I'm like, break out <laughs> the fondue pot. We're here in the 70s <laughs> swanky Q&A. William Freaking National Love, Treasure. love William Freaking. Let's talk about the music of The Exorcist. Music makes the people come together. Guys, he's doing Ooh. deep squats. He's doing deep squats as he's singing <laughs> into the mic. So just you so, know. when you think of The Exorcist and you think of music, probably the first thing that comes to mind is this track called Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. I can't even do the tune. I just think of the Halloween like do 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 do. It's like it sounds like Halloween, but it's like it's. I know that's not it, but it's kind of like that. I Um, want somebody to edit a trailer of The Exorcist with that as the the background. (laughs) Do it again. Do it again. (laughs) I don't know. I I think you actually got some of those notes. Yeah. I think it's good. Okay, okay. In my mind, it sounded really good. <laughs> so when you think of The Exorcist, you think of this track called Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. But when you actually watch the movie, you're like, wait a minute. This track appears in like two rando scenes. Yeah. It's like when she sees the priest for the first time, where she sees Father Karras and she overhears It accentuates the scene as it should. It's not the defining thing. Okay. So you hear it there and then you hear it at the end of the movie. And that's it. And it's even at the end of the movie for like a little bit. Mm-hmm. But somehow that piece of music became as it became known as the Exorcist theme, even though it's not really used in the movie as a theme at all. It just appears in that random scene and at the end, right at the credits. I think it's because those two moments in the movie have an emotional impact on people. Well, I have a right? question for you. You're the mm-hmm. resident Hitchcock enthusiast. For the psycho theme, the shower scene, what we know for the violins, a brum, brum, brum. How long is that song? Because I only know those oh, like 30 seconds. Thir- yeah, 30 seconds at the most. So there's no two-minute thing, and they highlighted the 30 seconds? Yes, and I think the, the scene is so impactful that you remember its track. But I think well, but the rest of the movie has a lot of music, though. Oh, for sure. But I'm just curious. But that, but, but that, because it's a moment where the, the audience has a trauma, and so they remember those drinks. And also it was scored cuts. to the moment, whereas this... Do, do you know? I, I'm curious for the tubular okay. bells. Wait, was this Let created me... before and then given? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's some really okay. backtrack. Tell me, I want to know. <laughs> so, originally, um, renowned Argentinian composer Lalo Schifre, known for creating the Mission Impossible theme, nominated for six Academy Awards. He did Cool Hand Luke, The Sting, all sorts of movies. Mm. He was hired to do the score, and he did an entire score for the whole movie. And William Freaking heard it, and he famously took the entire score, I don't know what, in what physical form it was, and threw it in a parking lot, and he hit it in. And so he decided that he was going to, and he fired the 
Lalo Schifrin, who was a famous Academy Award winning oh, composer. he was on a bender. He, yes, he was on a coke bender. And he was like, he famously like threw the thing and it was like a big temper tantrum. What did he throw? Like the the tracks, the I, tape? Like the what tracks, did he throw? I guess. <laughs> so, there were tapes. I'm trying to figure out how this works. He just punches works. a musician the, in the face. He's like, no. His housewives moment. I don't know <laughs> where he threw the, the score like physically into the parking lot. I don't know. But so then he fired Lalo Schifrin. And so he ended up using... Not a lot of actually the movie doesn't have a lot of music. Yeah, um, it's mostly pieces of classical music, um, like the I think it's Polish composer Penderecki, who Kubrick also uses in um, The Shining, mm-hmm. and then David Lynch used again in Twin Peaks: The Return. So he the, the little piece of music that he uses to kind of he didn't want the music to to tell you how to feel. Hmm. He wanted the music to be just like another another sound element, and so if you notice that there's very little music, it's like barely in a movie, and they're they're almost like tones or like beats. It's they're not very. It's not very overpowering music. It's not psycho Bernard Herrmann music, right? And so tubular bells is only the kind of tune that you hear in the movie, and I think people want to give the movie a theme song. So because that's the only song and it's also borrowed. Like to, uh, Mike Oldfield was a composer that didn't, he didn't do music for movies. He just did his own music. You know, Tangerine Dream who did a lot of scores right. or actually scored William um, Friedkin's Sorcerer, but also Legend. They were like a electronica band. Yeah. Somehow got pulled into scoring music. He actually wanted them to score the, the movie at some point. Oh, which by the way, happen. on tangent of electronica scoring, Tron with Daft Punk. I put it on and I, I write to it. It's very soothing yet interesting. So I, I get that whole strange thing of not having vocals and not having yeah, just straight wa- up strings. Not having strings. an orchestra or anything yeah. like that. He, wa- he didn't want anything to feel like a real movie. He wanted the movie to kind of take it. Well, and if Most you think the about scenes- it, these, these tubular bells, it's not having monks chanting, but you get like a religious background you 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 it's still like the themes of a church yeah and it's part of a longer piece so i think it's almost like he ended up what he ended up using in the movie is the temp track so usually a temp track is when editors are working they put sample music borrowed from tapes or whatever and they put it in the movie i think that's what's essentially in the movie is just the temp track and most of this horror scenes have no music so he didn't want any music under any of the possession scenes or Reagan scenes or the climax. There's no music. It's all sound effects and makeup and visuals. Which, P.S., I've, uh, been, I've been told, and tell me if I'm incorrect or if you know this, that the most used temp track of all time when people are editing their films is the Shawshank Redemption soundtrack. Yes, I've heard this too. Right? I think that's interesting. Really interesting. Um, so, so this was a temp track that so this, I think all of these, the tubular bells is... It was not part of the movie. It was not made for the movie. Drugged out. Willie Friedkin heard them and decided, oh, this is going here in the movie. And that was it. The editor, that, that's how it ended up in the movie. So when you watch the credits, all it is is a bunch of classical pieces and then Tubular electronica. And which, according to your story about William Friedkin throwing shit into the parking lot, maybe that was on a record that was in, <laughs> in the, the crazy furniture flying around scene. He's like, fuck yes. this, and throwing Shut all the records. This. He's like, film this. This is noise. Well, check this out. It is famously known that Lalo Schifrin, who was really pissed off about this. Yes, he should be. It's used... insulting. Come on. So apparently he used some of the rejected soundtrack of The Exorcist on the Amityville Horror. Oh. 
Oh. He got nominated for an Oscar for the score for the Amityville Horror. That is some elevated shade. So, yeah. So, that's, that's the, the story about the the music. There is no music in The Exorcist or barely any music. But the, the little there is is so memorable. So, yes. Let's talk about the marketing. <gasps> okay. Marketing. I'm so excited about this. Do you want to go first or shall I go? No, no you go. You go. Ah, I'm so out. excited about the marketing. In our day... Viral is a way of life. Everything goes viral constantly. The Exorcist went viral by word of mouth, by really mm-hmm. crazy tactics. I mean, when when this film first screened, people were fainting. They were giving out barf bags because they're like, you're going to be revolted. Um, there were ambulances parked out front in case people were fainting, which they did. So there's a whole convoluted study about just the marketing of The Exorcist. It was half, this is a a mania, like a mass hysteria of people getting caught up in the hype of this movie. And then also a very well curated marketing plan by none other than William Friedkin. Because he's a nut and I love him. It's not the way movies are released today. This is not a movie that came out on a weekend. Oh, no. And playing in a million theaters. It was playing in one theater Uh that Christmas. A line around the block for this movie. Yes. And so, and it played in theaters for over a year. Mm-hmm. So it's a slow release thing. It's almost like a limited, what we call a limited release now. So it was playing in this one theater in one city and then playing in another. It kind of went around rather than like playing everywhere at once. Right. And so it, so it it's caught It's a special engagement slowly. already. It's very exclusive. Yeah. Very exclusive, and, and people were like, oh, when it played in Chicago, fainting's were happening, and ambulances were coming, but it wasn't playing anywhere else, and then it went to LA, and then it went to Seattle, and then it went, so it took its time, and it was, and it made a lot of money doing that strategy, mm-hmm. and again, there were not as many theaters, it was this time where there were like, was one theater in the city, and it's a huge theater that fits 500 people, and so you gotta go, it's like going to the, to the theater theater, and so slowly, it, it caught on that this was happening, and I have an interesting story by none other than Ellen Burstyn. So she, the the people who worked on the movie, because this is how the movie was released, would go, okay, it's playing here. Let's go see it. Like, they would go. Ellen Burstyn would go with, like, Jason Miller. And they would sit in the back and watch the movie. Oh, that seems people. so fun. At one point, they were, I don't remember where, they were watching the movie. And uh, this woman started fainting vomiting and fainting and had like an episode and so ellen burston went to her help like oh my god are you okay and then she realized that she's helping this woman i was like if she opens her eyes and sees my face it's gonna be a psychotic break died of a heart attack yeah <laughs> so she actually gave the hand to someone else like i can't help her because if she sees me she's gonna have a moment so she walked away um <laughs> Ellen Burstyn is a great person to have in a moment of emergency. That What a calm way of thinking. Wow. Here's the thing. People were freaking out about this movie, but it was also a crazy hype machine before the movie came out. So there were trailers. And if you have, you can go online and see this. If you have epilepsy, I would not recommend this. But they used this to their advantage. They're black and white strobing effects. And so some people in the theater would actually have seizures and Billy Graham, religious zealot, he was saying that the devil had immersed himself in the celluloid of the film while making The Exorcist. And he was like jumping onto this curse theory. And uh, he said, yeah, the demon is doing this. The demon is cast into these theaters and he's going to make those who are more um, 
susceptible to corruption freak out. By the way, that trailer that you're talking about with the flashing strobe Yeah, the black images, and white strobing, yeah. That's the only time they use the Lalo Schifrin score. It's actually score. It's, it has part of that score. Oh. That's the only time. They used it in the marketing, but they didn't use it in the I'll movie. I'll go back and listen to that then. They picked it up from the parking lot after Billy threw a fit. <laughs> his temper tantrum <laughs> and stepped on his aviator sunglasses and threw down his beret. <laughs> So it was really a word of mouth. Like, I mean, it was a slow burn. If you think about it, we have 1972, the Pope acknowledging that evil exists in the Vatican. As, and then they, you know, as they're in production, the movie comes out and they do the slow marketing campaign. And what you said, limited release in very specialized theaters. And then people were harping on our good old William Friedkin for handing out barf bags <laughs> at the theater. And he was accused oh, of having plants amazing. of people fainting. He was accused of doing all these dramatic things. And then hysteria ensued. It's like the Beatle mania. If just like you're around crazy people, <laughs> it's like January 6th, maybe. I don't know. People are just so hyped up on other people's mania and they, they just glob on and think that this is the way to act. But I hate that he's damned for it because I think it's so creative. Now it's so easy to try to go viral online. You do some clicks, you buy some stuff. I mean, people can go viral pretty easily and you're a flash in the pan. This is creative marketing. And I wanna go down a little bit of a rabbit hole with William Castle. William Castle is the king of stunt PR. He is what we, Oh, this pleasure. Because he proudly boasted himself. Guys, William Castle, he did The Tingler. He did um, Straight Jacket starring Joan Crawford, which is a early mm. module for a serial mom. Just saying. Um, House on Haunted Hill. He proclaimed himself as the P.T. Barnum of movie making. He made great horror films, but he wanted people to see them. So he had spectacles. And during mm-hmm. House on Haunted Hill, he would rig a skeleton to fly over audience members. And it scared the shit out of them. But that's part of the fun. You're there. You want to be entertained and immersed. So I hate that The Exorcist got a lot of blowback of their marketing campaign. No, you're going to go see a scary movie. Prepare to be scared. And also for William Castle, he did Macabre. And it involves this whole thing about a family and insurance schemes. He made people in this one theater in London sign insurance policies before going in. They're like, if you die of fright during this viewing, your benefactors get $1,000. <laughs> That's amazing. They were, they were legit policies. Nobody died. But it added to the experience. And I, and Hitchcock did this too. Did he? You think about it with Psycho. Yeah, because remember Psycho, you couldn't go into the movie. Oh, the you entire couldn't trailer was Couldn't talk about the movie after you left. There were all these like rules to go in to see Psycho. To point out earlier what we, you and I were speaking about, William Friedkin doing a documentarian style mm. of this. This also parlayed later with the Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch was like, what, 99? It was 99. Mm-hmm. And 99. And we didn't have the internet so much at our fingertips, younglings. We, we couldn't Google where these kids in the woods went. <laughs> we had Yahoo. <laughs> and Netspace. Netspace? What was it called? Oh, was it? Netscape. We, Netscape, sorry. And we had Yahoo and Netscape. <laughs> but even barely that, Engine. I was not on the internet in 99. Um, AOL. Zing, zing. 
So I remember seeing Blair Witch opening weekend because you think this is actually a documentary. It's grainy. Who the hell has heard of these people at the time? It's like Josh Hartnett and the faculty and shit. Like you want to you want to see young stars. What is this film that everybody's spooked about? This black and white and found footage. And they marketed their campaign the exact same way as The Exorcist. So what I really want to talk about is the special effects. Um, More so, there's one specific shot where the psychologist in the beginning is attacked by the demon. And we just see the demon's point of view coming at Mm -hmm. the doctor. And he's in a chair. And he falls back. And... To get this effect, I mean, we kind of take this stuff for granted. Um, what they did at the time, it's kind of crude. I saw a behind-the-scenes video about this. I'm like, how did they get this shot? Like, you're going to the floor with this guy, and he's looking just aghast straight into the camera and so close. I'm like, how did they get this back in the early 70s? And the grips created uh-huh. this wooden chair. Like, they, they rigged the actor into the chair, and they put the camera right in front of him, like very close to him. And they tilted the entire thing back. So think about it as a merry-go-round. And you're on the, the little pony, you're on the horse, you're sitting on the mm-hmm. ass of the horse, and the camera is at your face on the pole for the merry-go-round. And imagine the entire pole and horse tipping over. That's what they did for that shot. Oh, shit. Right? I don't know why I brought I was... ponies into this, but that's what I equated it to. I'm like, this is uh, an intense operation. And it was the grips. It wasn't even the DP that did that. He he gives props to the grips for making this contraption. That's amazing. Immediately, you know where my mind went when you were describing this? It was like, what? oh, is this the, the, the precursor to the Requiem for a Dream shot? <gasps> oh! Where they, where they rig everything on the actors? Another Ellen Burstyn brilliant movie nominated for an Oscar. But remember how they, it was the first movie where we saw that, where the, the camera is attached to the actors. Oh, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And it's a close up. And so if they fall, it has the same effect. The camera right. falls exactly with Because that them. would be more, that would be intelligent to, to do a harness camera. Like that's kind of at the time. But man, that equipment was so bulky back in the day. Like this is a hard film camera. <laughs> 35 millimeter oh. <laughs> so you can't really trap that to somebody it's like he'll combust <laughs> you fall back burst into flames yeah and we underestimate they did a lot of crazy tricks i know they also like the set when they were doing that final sequence mm-hmm. they actually brought the temperature down so when they're the actual breath the frozen breath that comes out of their mouth their titanic breath right. is actually real right so he made them he made the whole room. So I was trying to read up on this. Like they were, they frigidaired that room. They made it below freezing. Yes. But then there was, was something. But it was sucking the moisture out of the air or something like that. There was a problem I read about, and I couldn't really think of the correct way to describe it because I didn't myself really understand it. At the same time, it was so cold, but it was sucking the moisture out of the air, and the breath was coming through. But it was only for like brief seconds, and so then they had to make the room colder. And then I, I, I understood were, everybody was shivering in, their uh, balls and they, lady parts they're off. They're actually really cold, yes. And nowadays when they do the breath effect 
in movies is all CGI. Yeah. Like they did Nobody has to suffer. And but there's something to the the realness of practical effects, which I think this movie has a plethora of. There is no, I mean, there was no such thing as CGI at the time, and so they created things that actually play on the camera. They're not added after the fact. Everything in this movie is really there. Mm-hmm. Even I want to say that the. The thing on her stomach when the the help me that pops out oh, of her yeah, stomach yeah. that gets referenced in so many movies, Nightmare on Elm Street being one of them, that's all real. Like that's makeup and everything. Like that's happening in real time. So that really yeah. helps the actors because yeah, you can be in a, a, a great actor and be in a green screen and use the power of imagination, do some Stella Adler shit, you know. <laughs> But it's different when you're reacting to things in real time. So when she's levitating, time. she's there on pulleys. They're exactly actually levitating. reacting and the to bed this. Moves the bed the shaking. Way it does. Okay, I saw this behind the scenes thing where there's a bunch of these '70s dudes and they're behind the wall of the bed and they're just like shaking it. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that old school stuff. I'm CGI is a necessary evil. I get it. And even William Friedkin in interviews, he's been asked, like, can you remake The Exorcist? And as you and I have talked about, it is being remade. And he's just like, it could be absolutely made the same how we did it. No CGI. One thing that really piqued my interest with the camera angles in this movie that I took for granted is that one scene where everybody's downstairs. There's a like a hubbub of activity and they ascend the stairs and go to Reagan's room. And... Is done in a steady cam way. So I looked up this behind the scenes video and it's fascinating because this guy, so you know my egg chair on my patio? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like mm-hmm. hung to the ceiling. And you're just like in this cradle of an egg. The the cameraman is sitting in this chair swing, and above he's hooked into pulleys and a cable system above the set. You're in the McNeil house, everybody's on the first floor. The cameraman is positioned in the chair swing on the steps and there's all these grips and PAs. Everybody's like kind of puppeteering the chair. (laughs) This does not seem safe in any sense of the word. And then there's another guy, like an assistant camera guy, like scooting (laughs) from behind the DPs, like kind of kind of like shifting him like this way to the left to the right get these angles as we like walk backwards up the stairs and and then the grip guys are kind of (laughs) doing a levy thing to get him around the stairs so the whole family ascends the stairs the guy's like shooting in front of them they go to the second part of the house and we take this for granted because this is so easy peasy in our technology now it's a steady cam shot that's it it could be done like that it's like a makeshift pre-steadicam situation yes a hundred percent and then the guy was just like oh don't even talk to me about lighting this you can see all the shadows from the wires so i don't even know how you light that so to, wow. to feed your theory about believe in the magic of filmmaking they did everything virtually impossible for the time and made it happen that shot is stellar and we just take it for granted to conclude this special effects segment of our program they did a lot of things that that now can be done with other newer equipment, right? So, in fact, if CGI existed, I think what you said about William Friedkin is quite correct. We wouldn't have to. We would never have used it because mm. it wouldn't really make the movie feel so real. Mm-hmm. And so, the actors had to be really cold. They they had to just everything had to be pro filmic, which is like it's actually the way it looks on camera when you shoot it is the way it will look to the audience mm-hmm. when you see it. Yeah. 
So we know all of y'all are getting the move for Halloween. The Exorcist is streaming on HBO Max. But if you live in a city that happens to show this on a big screen, go for it. Do it. It's just a whole other experience. So um, the new Bev in LA, October 29th, Saturday, they're doing a midnight showing. And it's the director's cut. I think that's going to be pretty fucking rad. Um, Gee, what are the top three scary things that you're watching right now that you're streaming from home? Tell me. Other than Dahmer. <laughs> yes. we. Um, so I just watched The Midnight Club, which is the latest entry. Mike Flanagan? The, the Mike, the, you know that Netflix has now coined the Flaniverse? Oh, stop it. I kind of <laughs> love it. He's the fun. The Flaniverse. Okay. So the, the newest entry into the Flaniverse. So this is a... How is um, it? An, I actually really enjoyed it. It was... It's an adaptation of a young adult novel from the 90s. Hmm. And the best way to describe it, it stars Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, your girl. Who is amazing. So her return to the screen, Mike Flanagan convinced her to be in this. And I think it's because of two reasons. One, it's this is a very Nightmare on Elm Street 3 vibe. So it's the story is about these terminal ill teenagers who basically go to live in this um, house with this doctor who's played by Heather Langenkamp and they're there basically to die and they meet every day at midnight to tell stories to each other and the idea is that the stories that they're telling to each other will keep them alive long enough so they can hear the end of the story I think Heather Langenkamp was attracted to this role as her return to horror because she herself lost her son to cancer when mm. he was a teenager mm. and so this, I think this role is close to her heart she, because the character is dealing with teenagers who are terminally ill. Catharsis of grief, died. what yeah. we always discuss. Deep grief porn. Um, so that's what that's one of the things that I just watched. The other thing that I just watched was the new Hellraiser movie oh. on Hulu. <laughs> she Razor, um, Shell Razor. She Razor, <laughs> played by God. awesome trans actress Jamie Clayton. And I have to say, I fucking loved it. I really? think this is, there's been a million Hellraiser movies <laughs> past 30 years. And to me, this this really felt like an 80s movie without it being set in the 80s. And I love the lead actress was very Billie Eilish with some like flash dance hair. And it just had like a whole vibe to it. And the director of this movie is a director of one of my new favorite movies, the Night House, starring Rebecca. I love The Night House. Right? Isn't The Night that House amazing? That was a amazing? great movie. That's a fun gem if it's streaming. I think it's streaming on HBO. I'm not sure. This director, he claims that he's kind of really into architectural horror, and The Night House has a lot to do with architecture and spaces. And this new Hellraiser movie, which is it's all about that. The other movie that I think really impressed me is Barbarian, which is a movie I only found out after it had already been number one in the box office in the nation for two weeks. And I was watching some random YouTube clip with Drew Barrymore interviewing her ex-boyfriend, Justin Justin Long. Long. She was like, I was watching your movie and it was so scary. I couldn't see it. And then I was like, what the fuck is she talking about? And then I looked it up and it's Barbarian. And so I went to see it. But also we think that a lot when watching Drew Barrymore. We're like, what the fuck is she, ta- like, <laughs> she talking? Like, we about- love her, but Turns what out the she was fuck? right. <laughs> <laughs> and so this movie is incredible. It's groundbreaking. It has, okay. it's out there. It's the guy that was trying to make it. The screenplay was rejected for 10 years because of the way it's written and the way that it tells its story. 
No one believed. He's like, you can't do this in a movie. You can't do that. You can have this. But I won't say anything about it because I think it's best to see it without it. And so when he finally got it made, all the things that he got rejected for are the things that are making the movie hit with audiences and extremely successful and making billions millions of dollars. If you, I thought I had seen everything in horror. This movie showed me something else that I've oh, never seen. So okay. just when you think it was all played out, there is something new. And I think and this is X has done this as well this year. So yeah. there's a horse to changing the rules and the twisting the knife on us. So we're oversaturated with content. And I just want to wade through and filter out what's good and what's not. Like, don't waste my time. I actually watched 10 minutes of the Munsters movie, Rob <gasps> Zombie's Munsters. Rob's, wait, what? You didn't tell me about this before. Um, because okay. you don't need to see it. Do oh, not. Is it really it, terrible? Well, his girl, Sherry Moon. <laughs> <gasps> Sherry Moon plays, oh no. Atrociously bad. It is mind-numbingly bad. And I told I told Jack, I put it on, I'm like, I just want to see where they go with this. Is this going to be a comedy or like, like a fucked up horror? It is like a high school play. It is so, we could not get through past 20 minutes. It was so bad. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with things that will help our listeners. Um, <laughs> I settled into Mr. Harrigan's phone. <gasps> Which I haven't seen yet. I tell highly me, me recommend more. it. And it's, it's not anything oh. relevatory. I mean, it's... Here's what I really like about it. It's like that Stephen King comfort movie in the 90s that you want to just nestle up and, you know, it's, it's comforting. In a, Donald Sutherland. I will I watch it. so much with Donald Sutherland talking about actors that work till the end. I was mesmerized. It's very good filmmaking. I, I, I really liked it. Um, so I did that. And then our friend Matt, he recommended Moloch. It's on Shudder. So if oh, you're, yes, which I have to see. You oh, told me, you gee, told me. You're, this is your vibe. You're going to love this. So, listeners, if you are still missing that Midsommar sadness, if you want some Nordic death cult in your life, go to Shudder and uh, check out Moloch because it's half a foreign film and half English and has, like, very feminist death cult undertones. And I, I jumped a few times. It was a nice scare that's not on everybody's radar. I really appreciate that recommendation. Shutter is awesome. Yeah. Um, so, guys, that's it for us. Have a spectacular Halloween. A spectacular Halloween. And remember, and the power of Christ compels you. The power, the power of, of Christ, Christ compels, compels you. you. Goodbye. Bye.